Well, good morning, Village Church. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village, and I am excited to open up the book of Ecclesiastes together with you. We'll be in the book of Ecclesiastes up until Christmas time. We'll spend a little time uh, in Advent series considering the Advent season, and uh, we'll jump back into the book of Ecclesiastes and finish up before Easter. And I am looking forward to walking through all of it with you as we start here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The book is about a number of things, and uh, one of those things is a question that uh, sort of is an age-old question, and it is, what is the meaning of life? I know a small question we're going to tackle this morning together. What is the meaning of life? And I think it is a question that more people have been asking over the last maybe three years than they've asked probably in some years. Over the last three years, a number of people have asked me that question. I've heard that question a number of times on news outlets and podcasts and video series. What is this really all about in the end? Well, to the naturalist, uh, the answer to that question is it's taking care of our environment. It's taking care of the earth. To the hedonistic answer is it's just seeking more pleasure and finding as much pleasure as you possibly can. To the existentialist, it's just thinking more. To the intellectual, it's, 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 it's just knowing more. To the moralist, it's doing more good. And to the humanist, it's doing more for yourself and for other human beings. There's all kinds of views, all kinds of ideas about what the meaning of life is. To the materialist, it's to gain more. And we certainly live in an environment like that today. To the pragmatist, it's to live more efficiently and to live more self-sufficiently, and that's being talked about a lot today. To the nihilist, it means nothing, because life is ultimately meaningless. What is the meaning of life? The answer that the book of Ecclesiastes might actually feel like on the surface could be more in tune with the nihilist. That the meaning of life is meaninglessness. But the book of Ecclesiastes has one important caveat that I bet you wish I was going to tell you right now, but I'm going to wait a few minutes. What is the meaning of life? The caveat is one of the main points of wisdom that the author of Ecclesiastes shares with us throughout the 12 chapters of this book, a book of wisdom, where he wants his readers not only to hear what he's saying, but to heed what he's saying, to order their lives after those things. That is, in fact, what wisdom means, ordering our lives after the things of God. Redeemed people ordering their lives after the things of God, after the things of their Redeemer. Who is the author that's passing along such profound wisdom? Who is the person that would claim to know that they can answer the question, what is the meaning of life? Who is the author that, that says they have wisdom, profound wisdom, on one of the most profound questions that human beings think about? Verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And for this reason, many people think that the person that's passing along this wisdom is Solomon, the person that the Bible describes as the person that had more wisdom than anyone in human history. And there are good reasons why we believe that it could be Solomon, but... But many people believe, rather, it's someone like Solomon. It's someone that has Solomon kind of-ish, Solomon-like wisdom. That this person has learned from Solomon and from others like him, and now he's passing along this wisdom to a generation of God's people that desperately need it. Someone writing with a kind of Solomonic kind of wisdom to a, a highly educated class of Israelites, God's people, who were living in a culture that afforded them the opportunity to pursue all kinds of things like wealth, and money, and success, and status, 
and all kinds of sexual pleasure and power and autonomy, and the list goes on. I mean, as we read the book of Ecclesiastes, as we read through these next 12 chapters over these next number of months, we're going to see that the, the author might as well have written to an American Christian audience like ours who would profess to know something of Christ, but would often pursue all of these same things, and would all too often put too much weight on the things that everyday ordinary people who don't know Christ put weight on. It's to an audience like this, an audience, I believe, kind of like ours, that the teacher answers the question, what is the meaning of life? And in verse 2, we find really the center piece of the entire book where he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And here, I believe, we learn the first lesson from the book of Ecclesiastes, and I believe it's something like this, that life is meaningless when, here's the caveat that you were waiting for, Life is meaningless when we live our lives without the meaning maker. This is the caveat to the book of Ecclesiastes. The nihilist would say that life is ultimately meaningless. And the Christian would say, no, no, no. Life is ultimately meaningless without, caveat, outside of, disconnected from our meaning maker. And this verse, verse 2, is really the theme verse of the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, mentions this word vanity 37 more times in the book after this time. And by mentioning this word so often, the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to tell us something. He's trying to draw our attention to the reality that outside of knowing God, our maker, who ultimately is our meaning maker, the one that gives meaning to our life, living our lives according to his design, ultimately outside of that, life is, life becomes meaningless. This word vapor means, life is ultimately meaningless. And the answer, the, the question that you're asking right now is why? Why is that? And I think in part the answer that the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to know is that because in the scope of human history, and especially in the scope of eternity, our lives are very short and they're very inconsequential. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Our lives are very short and they're very inconsequential. You know, I have a good friend, uh, and a few years ago, after sabbatical, um, I was um, going by his office because I went by the offices of a lot of the guys in our church. And I wanted to see what they were doing and what they were doing for work. And I went in his office, and he, he had this chart up. And I've, I've stretched it out to make it sort of landscape so, so that it fits on a slide. So it's a little distorted, but it's the it's life of a, of, of a 90-year-old human being. And, and I went to his office, and he had the chart up on the wall, and he had marked off where he was. And he was marking off every week as the week went by. You can literally mark 90 years by weeks and see where you are. That's where I am, okay? And although I know I look 38, that's 48 years of life, okay? I thought a lot more people would laugh. You know, I really did. So, yeah, the glasses give it away, right? 48 years of life and, and, and 40-ish weeks looks like that. That's where I'm at. Where are you at? Some of you guys are a lot further along the road. Some of you guys are quite a bit further back, but you'll get there soon, trust me. Like when you look at your life on a, on a chart or on a piece of paper, you, you think about the brevity of life. C.S. Lewis has this analogy about eternity, and, and it's, 
It's, it's that like eternity is like a scroll that's, that's on down. It's, it's an eternal scroll. And, and human history is like a line, a small line that's on that scroll. A small little line that you would draw on the middle of a scroll that, that, that stretches out over eternity. And if human history is a small little line on that eternally stretched out scroll, what do you think your life is? <laughs> it's a dot that you can't even draw. It's so small and inconsequential in the light of not only human history, but in the light of eternity. And the Bible talks a lot about this reality. In the book of Psalms, Psalm 39, it says, Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is, is nothing before you. Surely all humankind stands as, as mere breath. And that word selah means stop, think about this. And this morning, I just want to ask you to just to stop and to think about that. All mankind stands as mere breath, as a vapor. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Our lives are very short, and no matter what we work and we toil for, listen to me, it is too brief and it is too shallow outside of the meaning God attaches to it. And we see this idea in the New Testament as well. The book of James you're probably thinking about. Chapter 4, where James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a place, and we'll go to a town and spend a year there. We'll trade and we'll make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For your mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. And if you don't believe me, talk to Bob Osborne. And Bob's the oldest member in our church. And Bob, I, I hate to call you out, but it's just, we all know, right? It's just, and you look great and you're active and you're following Jesus. And if anyone asks you after church, I bet you're going to tell them the same thing you told me outside the other day life goes fast. And as many of you as you get to the end and you're Bob's age, you get toward the end, and, and, and many of you may say, yeah, I have no regrets. And some of you will say, no, I, I got a lot of regrets. But either way, it went fast. Whether you feel like I lived it with no regrets or I lived it and I got a lot of regrets, it's fast, it's quick. And you pass 90 and you'll know. My grandfather was 101, and I bet, you know, he still told me, life is fast, Matthew. Life is short and meaningless when our lives are lived without the meaning maker. And the teacher goes on in verses 3 to 11 to paint a picture of this and to prove his point. And he begins with a rhetorical question. Look at verse 3. He says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but the answer the reader is expecting that you and I know intuitively is nothing. What does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? Again, intuitively, he, he knows that we should be thinking he gains nothing. And that's the second point that I believe the author is trying to make, is that man gains nothing from life apart from the meaning maker. If verse 2 is the theme verse for the entire book, I believe verse 3 is the theme verse for this section in this chapter. It acts as a summary of this passage. Verse 3 says, What does a man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? Under the sun literally means living under the sun, S-U-N, without living under the sun, S-O-N. Right? Living under the sun without living under the rule and reign of Jesus, the Son of God. Gain means literally to be left over or to remain. It literally means profit. What is left over at the end? What profit is left over at the end of your life? What is left over at the end of all of your work, all of your striving, all of your building? And the teacher knows intuitively that we know, if we just stop to think about it for a moment, the answer is 
nothing. Outside of being connected to our meaning maker, the answer is nothing. We think about our lives literally. He wants us to think about our lives like a P&L statement. <laughs> and some of you like to look at P&L statements and some of you really don't. <laughs> but, but the essential reality is that there's profit and there's loss, P&L, right? And if, um, if, there is a, if there's an even amount of sort of expenses as there is to, to, uh, to income, there actually is no profit. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's just flat. And no one ever starts a company just to break even. Part of the point is we should not be living our lives just to break even at the end, just to say there's no profit, there's no gain, there's nothing left over, there's nothing that we carry forward. There's nothing left for all of our work, for all of our toil, for all of our effort. We hear this from a wiser person than the teacher in Ecclesiastes, Matthew 16, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And Jesus tells us the same thing that the teacher's telling us, that if we try to gain so much by gaining the whole world, but we've not gained relationship with God himself, our maker, our meaning maker, we've gained nothing. And the preacher proves his point that man gains nothing from life apart from the meaning maker with an example that anyone from any generation can relate to. Like, you don't need to be a sophisticated you know, part of a sophisticated progressive generation like ours, per se, right, to, to, to understand the answer to this question. Anyone from any generation can understand what he's talking about. And he says as much in verse 4. Look at it. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You know what we say? We say the opposite. We say, we say a generation comes and goes, right? We say, oh, this comes and goes. No, he says a generation goes and a generation comes. And the reason I believe he does it is he's pointing to the replacement of one generation after another. And I think we say a generation goes and a generation comes because we like to think about life more than death. A generation comes, life. A generation goes, death. He says, no, no, no. A generation goes and then a generation comes. He focuses on the futility of life, the end of death. He's focusing on the replacement of one generation after another. One generation replaces another, and nothing of substance changes. There is no gain. There is no profit. Every generation thinks they're going to affect some kind of monumental change. Like, the boomers came out of World War II and just thought, we're going to make a better world without war, and then they just <laughs> started a bunch of other wars. The Gen Xers thought they would bring more life balance, but they ended up working just as hard, just differently. Right? The millennial side, oh, we're going to make a better world by, by being tech-savvy. No, no, they're not tech-savvy. They're just tech-addicted. That's what they are. And Gen, Th and Gen Z thought, um, well, actually, I'm not really sure what Gen Z is thinking. Um, sorry, you guys. Get it together, okay? <laughs> oh, man. I could say more, but I won't. Look, here's the point. Every generation thinks they're going to do something different than the last. They're going to do this monumental thing. They're going to affect this monumental change, and then nothing ever really changes. You know, talk to, talk to, talk to your parents, some of you, who, who grew up, you know, going to a drive-in and sitting in the backseat of, a, of, a, of an old Ford car or something like that. Like, all the same problems, all the same issues, all the same temptations, all the same things. Nothing ever really changes. 
The teacher proves his point that man gains nothing apart, uh, in life apart from the meaning maker, not only through an example that every generation can relate to, but an example that anyone with any level of education can relate to. Listen to me. You don't need a philosophy degree to understand Ecclesiastes. And you don't need a philosophy degree to understand the meaning of life. You don't need that. You don't need what your junior college philosophy professor taught you to understand this stuff. You just need to listen to me. You just need to look outside. You just need to walk outside and you need to look at the stuff that God has made. Look at verses 5 to 7. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes to the, around to the north. Around and around the wind goes. On its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The sun rises and the sun sets. And there's no rest for the sun. It hastens. It's, it's panting to get there again because there's no rest for it. There is no gain. The wind blows here and there, and it appears like, oh, the wind's free. No, no, it has circuits, and it returns to the same place again. There is no gain. The, the water runs from the highest point to the lowest point. I think he's talking about the Dead Sea, where literally it all flows there and doesn't go anywhere, and yet it doesn't rise. It all stays the same. It never overflows. There is no profit. There is no gain. And what the author's trying to tell us is when we look at the cycles in nature, we see that there is a lot of motion, but there is little movement. There's a lot of motion. There's a lot of moving pieces, but there is little movement. Things essentially stay the same. We talk about this in terms of the hamster wheel. Lots of motion, but not a lot of movements. There is no gain. Now, I know enough to know that some of you are saying, okay, okay, okay. I see this in the world, but, but we're human beings, right? right? We're sophisticated. Like, we are the most sophisticated beings in the world. So I understand nature and the laws of nature, but, like, we live within that. And we've, we've found ways to get around things and to deal with things. Like, we know how to harness power from all these elements. Like, we get it. We can harness power from wind and from water and from the sun. Like, we're bigger than this. We're sophisticated people. <laughs> and things will be different for us. Like, we can accomplish anything. Human beings can accomplish anything. And the teacher knows that we're thinking this, and he goes on to prove his point, not only from examples that any generation can relate to, and not only from examples that anyone from, with an example from anyone that with any level of edu education can relate to, as they simply just walk outside, but with anyone that, that anyone has that any level of self-awareness can relate to. If you know yourself in any way, if you know your thoughts in any way, if you know what you speak in any way, if you know what your eyes have seen over the course of your life in any way, you know enough to know this is true. And the teacher knows it. And he tells us in verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it, and the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. No matter how many words mouths have spoken, they can speak more. There is no gain. No matter how many things that eyes have seen, there is more to see. There is no gain. No matter how many things the ears have heard, there is more to hear. There is no gain. There is no profit. When I graduated seminary, I thought I, I knew a lot. And I was arrogant, and I probably offended people in my church. And then I went to grad school. Um, I finished up my master's degree, and I went to start working on a doctoral degree, and then I thought I'd be really smart. And I paused that doctoral degree. We were having, we were having kids, and, and I was actually struck with reality that 
all I really knew after I finished multiple graduate degrees or tried at least was not how much I knew, but was how much I didn't know. Like every one of those little things that I studied in my master's degree, like you could take a rabbit trail down one little part of that, and some people devote their whole lives to that one thing. And then there's another little thing, and you could follow that one all the way down another trail. And like I thought I knew so much, and I don't, and I don't. There's a lot that I don't know. Like my eyes could read more words and my ears could hear more teaching and I, I could say more things, but at the end of the day, there is more. There is no gain. I don't know that much. There's no ultimate gain. There's no ultimate profit at the end of life without our maker. And if the author hadn't made his point yet, he repeats his point in verse 9. Look at it where he says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. The same things, the same cycles, the same rhythms, the same issues come back over and over again. There is not anything that's ultimately new. There's no ultimate profit. There's no ultimate gain. There's no ultimate meaning outside of our relationship with the meaning maker. Now look, I'm telling you that the teacher is wise. And he is. And as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, he's going to say, he has a lot of wisdom. So he anticipates what many of us are thinking right now. Or at least some of us may be thinking right now. Um, so there's literally nothing new. <laughs> there's nothing ultimately gained. There's no ultimate meaning in anything that human beings have accomplished on their own. Some of you are probably thinking, this teacher is so archaic. You know, he doesn't know how progressive of a generation human beings are now. You know, he doesn't understand my generation, how progressive we are, how meaningful the things that my generation is doing, and the kind of, the kind of change that we will be affecting for history. I'd be, I'm a little sarcastic, but, but there is sarcasm in, the, in this book. It is, it is satirical in some way. It is sort of poking at these ideas. But some of you are still thinking, no, 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 we've invented so many things that have done so much good, and we've, we've created policies that have done so much good. We've created laws that have affected so much good and change for so many people. There have been movements. We've changed one thing to another, and, and it's affected history. And yes, but what the teacher says to our anticipated objection and all of these things is found in verse 10, where he says, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in ages before us. And I believe that's the third thing that he wants us to know is there is nothing new to attach ultimate meaning to. If you're part of a younger generation right now and you're thinking, oh, yeah, we're going to do it so much differently than my parents or my grandparents. We're going to be better. We're so progressive. It's been done. Taking a different form, a little different emphasis, a little different words, the way you explain it, a little different take, a little different leader that leads the movement. It's all been done before. And human beings have a tendency to attach ultimate meaning to new things. And I just want to tell you, that is not a new thing. It's been happening for a really long time. And none of those things that are ultimately new are new. They've been done before. And you know what? <laughs> they will be done again. Albeit in a different form, it might be a different issue, but the same thing is going to be done again. 
I told you that this teacher is wise, maybe a couple times, and I'm going to tell you one more time. The teacher is wise. So he anticipates a final objection. He says, you know, I know you don't know my generation. You know, maybe that's true for my generation, but, but you don't know me. You, you, you might not know my generation, and maybe that's a decent answer, but you don't know me, right? You don't know what I can accomplish. You don't know what I will do. You don't know how hard I work. You don't know how much effort I put in. You don't know how much knowledge I'm gaining. You don't know how much talent that I have. You don't know how much people will remember me and how the things that I do will live beyond me. You don't know me, and you don't know my limits. There's one final objection to this, and the teacher knows it, and so he says in verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things. There will be, nor will be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after I believe this is the fourth and last thing maybe we can learn here is that there is no lasting legacy to the meaning of our lives outside of our lives connected to the meaning maker. There's no lasting legacy. If you want to prove it, just talk to me about the last memorial service that you went to. Talk to me about the last time you thought about that person. The reality is what's going to happen is you're going to go to your next memorial service and if you don't know that person very, 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 very well, you're going to forget about that in two weeks, and you will have gone on with your life. There's no lasting legacy for life apart from our lives lived according to our meeting maker. You might say, well, yeah, like, I'm a, I'm a different person. Like, people will remember me, or my family will remember me. And that is true to generations. Tell me the first, middle, and last name of your great-grandfather off the top of your head. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's tough. That's a tough reality. Like, like legacies are not going to last outside of the things that are connected to Jesus Christ, the only one who is ultimately lasting, the only one whose life ultimately lasts. You know, you go to a building and you see a plaque on a building and you think to yourself, they put the plaque there because the guy wanted credit for building the building, and that's partially true. What he wanted was he wanted people to remember him after the building was built and after he had passed away and there's a plaque where he can be remembered, not just for building it, but for who he is. And guess what? Someday the building gets demolished. Someday it's no longer there. And the plaque is in a trash heap along with everything else. And someone new has donated a bunch of money to build a new building with a new name and a new plaque. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? So what's the meaning of life then? What is it? At the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, the author tells us this in chapter 12, verses 13 to 14. The end of the matter. What's the end? All has been heard. Here's the end. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The meaning of life is to live our lives with and for our meaning maker. And if you don't believe the teacher in Ecclesiastes, because we're not really sure who exactly he is, and if you don't believe me, because I'm only 48 and maybe there's not enough wisdom, and, and, and maybe you would believe Maybe we'd believe Jesus, I would hope. 
who Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 12, the wisdom of God. If you don't believe the wisdom of the author or you don't believe the wisdom of the guy you're listening to right now or you don't believe the wisdom of the person that's sitting next to you or you don't believe the wisdom of your grandfather or whatever it is, maybe you would believe the wisdom of Jesus who the Bible describes as actually the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus passes along this wisdom to his disciples. Starting in verse 21, he says, From that time Jesus began, Matthew says, to, throw, to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is literally giving his disciples the preview of the center point of human history, the center point of redemptive history. Jesus is giving his, his disciples the preview. This is what the meaning of life is all about. It's all about what I'm saying to you right now. It all centers on this. This is where it's at. Me living, me dying, me rising, and all that comes out of that. This is the meaning of life. And Peter stood up and began to rebuke him and said, Far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. In part because I believe Peter was like, no, 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 no. What's going to happen is you're going to become the king, and then we're all going to rule with you, and we're all going to have all of those things that everyone is chasing, but we're just going to have more. More wealth, more money, more success, more power, more prestige, more honor, more of everything, more autonomy. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. This way of thinking is a hindrance. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And isn't that the way so many people live? Isn't that the way we have all lived? Setting our hearts on, on the things of man. Not the things of God, but on the things of man. Chasing after all of those things and trying to find ultimate meaning in those things. Some of us are still trying. We profess Christ, but we pursue those things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it, hear the word, what will it profit a man? What gain will there be in the end? If he gains profits the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? Or what would a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. then he will repay each person according to what he has done. There is a gain. There is a reward. Some theologians call it the law of rewards. There is a payment at the end. There is something that lasts beyond this life. There is a profit that is possible, that, that, that is not only possible for this life, but in the life to come. And that profit is possible. That gain is possible. That meaning is possible for our lives when we attach our lives to his life. 
if you're not yet a Christian, the, the, the reason that Jesus was, was drawing his disciples' attention to his life and his death and his resurrection, because this is what Christianity is all about. If you're not yet a Christian, we believe that, that we were living our lives for, for things that are not ultimate things. Maybe you feel that way today. That's true for all of us outside of relationship to Christ. But as Christians, we believe that Jesus came to live a life that we could never live, a life perfectly lived toward God, a life lived with perfect meaning toward God. Everything that Jesus thought and said and did was perfectly pleasing to God and perfectly in line with what the Father had had ordained from the foundations of the world, all that God wants. Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf. That's what Christians believe. And then he died a death that we should have died on the cross and in our place and for our sins. We are people that have tried to make meaning for our own lives. We don't need the meaning from you. We don't need to attach our life to you. We can make our own way. We've sinned against him. We've disobeyed him. We've disregarded him. We said, no, no, we make our own way without you. And that sin separates us from God. And Jesus came and he lived and he died on a cross, in our place, and for our sins. And then he rose three days later to praise, prove that he had the authority to do it and to release us into a, a life that we could never have otherwise. The Bible says he's the firstborn among many brothers, that we could be resurrected to a new life that's now attached to God again. That God reinvites us to himself and that he reinvites us into the things that he's doing. And we can reattach ourselves to, to his purposes, and that gives our life an eternally significant purpose and that everything we do in our lives now has so much more purpose and value than we can even think. Paul says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's inviting us into the things that he is doing. If you are a Christian this morning, your life has more meaning than you could ever imagine because everything that you think, say, and do can be consequential in the things that God is doing. I can't think of a more meaningful life than that. I think this is connected to our good news this morning. I think it's something like this. That Jesus is the giver of life. And he is the one who gives meaning to life. Through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. And when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in Jesus we can enter into this amazing new life that's filled with meaning, that literally is filled with meaning for this life and for the life to come. And Village Church, I hope that's good news for you. I want to tell you as one of your pastors, your life is so meaningful. It's way more meaningful than you could ever imagine. You can see some of it now, and you see some of the fruit now, and you see the fruit that your life is bearing now, and, and, and you see some of it now, and you will see <laughs> the law of rewards. There will be so much that you and I will see then, will only see then. Would you live your life now in light of the life then? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are the wisdom of God. And we thank you that even for the biggest questions in life, you have the answers. You have the answer. Thank you that our life is filled with meaning. When we are filled with your spirit, when we are connected to you, when we have relationship with you, when we obey you, when we follow your commandments, when we order our life according to the things that you say are most meaningful, when we attach our life 
by grace through faith to your life when you're united together with Christ. Our life takes on so much meaning and we thank you. And thank you for making it possible. We pray that you would receive the honor and the glory that only you deserve. And as we sing about this reality, all glory would go to you, that it, it truly would. You're the one who deserves it. We say these things and we ask these things in your name and for your sake, Jesus. Amen.